0: If you love chilling mysteries, unsolved cases, and a touch of mom-style humor, Moms and Mysteries is the podcast you've been searching for. Hey guys, I'm Mandy. And I'm Melissa. Join us every Tuesday for Moms and Mysteries, your gateway to gripping, well-researched true crime stories. Each week, we deep dive into a variety of mind-boggling cases as we shed light on everything from heists to whodunits. We're your go-to podcast for mysteries with a motherly touch. Subscribe now to Moms and Mysteries wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, it's Grace here, writer and host of Red Rum True Crime Podcast. Just a note about our social media pages. You can follow us on Instagram at Red Rum True Crime, on Twitter at Red Rum True Crime, and on Facebook, Red Rum True Crime Podcast. Also, if you've enjoyed the podcast, please rate and review as it really helps us out. Thanks so much. And now, on with the show. This podcast contains adult themes and content that some listeners may find distressing. Listener discretion is advised. Georgie walked the short distance to the end of Waterloo Bridge to wait for a bus on the final leg of his journey. As he stood waiting, he felt a sharp, stinging pain in his right thigh. He made his way to work where he complained of nausea and began to vomit. Throughout the afternoon, his condition began to deteriorate, his temperature had dropped, and his blood pressure had fallen. He was rushed to the hospital where he immediately informed doctors, quote, I am a Bulgarian defector. I broadcast with the BBC. I have enemies in Bulgaria, and my friends have told me the KGB are out to get me. The doctors who were treating Georgie were sceptical of this story and didn't believe him. After examination, they concluded the pain to be from something natural, such as an insect bite. However, by the beginning of the following week, the chilling truth would be revealed. This is Red Rum, a podcast focusing on the true victims of crime. Episode 10, Georgi Markov. Georgi Markov was born in Sofia, Bulgaria, on the 1st of March, 1929. He grew up exploring the churches of Sofia, making his way through the city hopping on the red and white trams and dodging the busy bustle of the streets the city was full of romanesque architecture decorated with beautiful art mosaics paintings and wooden carvings georgie would spend the early mornings playing with friends in the park surrounded by trees rock gardens and small ponds by 1946 He'd found a real love for writing and his intelligence, specifically in chemistry, allowed him to graduate high school and go on to university to study industrial chemistry. At the age of 19, Georgie became ill and ended up spending time in hospital whilst being treated for tuberculosis. It was here that he spent time writing, He found a real enjoyment in writing novels, short stories, and scripts. Once he'd completed his studies, Georgie gained work in factories and as a chemical engineer. He also worked as a teacher in technical school. But soon, he shifted his focus toward writing. In 1962, Georgie's second novel, called Men, was published and won the Novel of the Year award. Men spoke of the conflict of the, quote, true communist and the corrupt system, although never criticising it directly, focusing more on the individual at fault, unquote. The novel had huge success. It was adapted into a film, a theatre play, a radio play, and even translated. Georgi was given a job in one of the biggest publishing houses and was immediately invited by the president, Zivkov, into the Union of Bulgarian Writers, a union that offered privilege. The regime in Bulgaria kept the writers under its constant watch throughout the use of money, luxury and general privilege that made it easier for its members to write. Georgi enjoyed the privileged life he'd been allowed by Zivkov. He was invited on hunting weekends with other intellectuals and, generally, the lifestyle was unconventional, adventurous, and artistic. One that most Bulgarian citizens weren't used to. Zivkov's objective with the union was to use the talented writers to help serve the communist regime and, ultimately, In order to be a writer in Bulgaria, you had to be part of this union. Something that was also true in the Soviet Union. Towards the end of the 1960s, Georgi was of celebrity status in Bulgaria and was actually working more so on plays rather than his novels. His success in writing had been great and he was dubbed as one of the most skilled writers in Bulgarian history. Zivkov nurtured talented artists and writers during Georgi's peak, whilst always ensuring political sanction. Bulgaria was home to a paranoid dictatorship, and Zivkov was a die-hard communist. At the time, Bulgaria was the Soviet Union's closest political ally, and their fierce state security system held firm ties to the KGB, a secret police force that was the main security agency for the Soviet Union. By 1970, Georgie's life had changed hugely. He'd fallen in love with a British woman called Annabelle Dilk, he'd moved to London, and they had their first child together, a baby girl called Alexandra Rainer Markov. One late afternoon in 1977, Georgie answered a phone call from his friend. He was told that he'd heard on good authority that there had been an assassination ordered on Georgie's life. Georgie was sceptical. He assumed the threat was hearsay. His writing could be controversial, but nothing that would warrant an assassination attempt. However, just a week later, he received another phone call, this time anonymously, telling him that there was a vial of poison with his name on it. Georgie's scepticism changed one weekend in May of 1978, whilst on a trip to Munich. He was visiting some colleagues who had held a dinner party in his honour. He went to take a sip of his drink when he noticed the liquid start to bubble. He knew immediately someone had secretly slipped a toxin into his drink. But none of his colleagues had seen it, and it wasn't clear if anyone could confirm Georgie's account. Not long after that, he heard a story that the KGB had attempted an assassination of a fellow Bulgarian writer by smearing a poisonous gel on his body. He heard that the writer became extremely ill, but ultimately survived. Following this, Georgie became quite paranoid and shifted his home life to prepare for any such assassination attempts. He had heard of many incidents of food poisonings on high-profile agents and political leaders, so he began only eating at home. He also made sure he didn't share his travel plans with anyone other than his wife. On the morning of September the 11th, Georgie set off for work. He drove his car to Waterloo Bridge in central London, where he then parked, and walked the short distance to the edge of the bridge to wait for a bus on the final leg of his journey. As he was standing waiting, he felt a sharp, stinging pain in his right thigh. And as he turned around to see what had happened, he noticed a white, medium-billed, average height man picking up an umbrella and hurriedly making his way across the road before jumping into a taxi. Georgie wasn't sure what had happened, and although his leg felt a little tender, he made his way to work with the hope that the feeling would ease off. However, as the day wore on, Georgie began to panic when he realised that the pain hadn't subsided, but had in fact gotten worse. Later that afternoon, he began to develop a fever. It was at this point that he realised what had happened. This was no accident. He had been poisoned. Georgie rushed to the hospital where he immediately informed doctors, I am a Bulgarian defector. I broadcast with the BBC. I have enemies in Bulgaria and my friends have told me that the KGB are out to get me. Unquote. However, the doctors who were treating Georgie were a little sceptical of his story and initially didn't believe him. A physical examination found Georgie to have a fever, but he was fully conscious and there were no immediate signs of any foul play. Although not long after his admittance to A&E, Georgie's condition began to deteriorate and he complained of nausea and began to vomit. He complained of the pain in his thigh getting worse and when doctors checked again, they found it to be extremely swollen. However, doctors still believed the pain to be from something more natural, such as an insect bite. Georgie was given appropriate treatment for what doctors theorized could be the issue. But the infection didn't respond, so doctors continued running tests and came up with a number of possibilities, including possible snake venom. The symptoms Georgie exhibited were too complex to be from a simple infection. His temperature had dropped, his blood pressure had fallen, And his white blood cell count had risen, all symptoms indicative of severe septic shock. Georgie stayed in hospital for a further two days, and on Monday morning, his good friend David came to visit. As David moved closer to Georgie, he realized that his skin was pale, and when he took hold of his hand, it was cold to the touch. He rushed to get help and the doctor took Georgie's blood pressure, which he found to be extremely low. At 7.45am that same morning, Georgie went into cardiac arrest. The medical team tried to resuscitate him for the next 40 minutes, but weren't able to stabilise his heartbeat. Georgie was pronounced dead. He was just 49 years old. Immediately following Georgie's death, an investigation was launched. The investigation focused on Georgie's KGB claims, and for this, they needed to take a look into his background and how he arrived in England. It was around 10 years earlier, in 1968, that Georgie had really started to push the boundaries of what he could write. Eventually... His works were in complete opposition to the regime Zivkov had brought him into the Union to help solidify. Criticism of the regime was never tolerated. So, whilst Georgi started using his writings to speak out against the oppressive regime, he also drew unwanted attention to the authorities and the people in charge. He enjoyed the fact that theatre allowed interpretive freedom, something unheard of in communist Bulgaria. Georgie also knew that plays were much more public than novels. They were events where people could speak with public criticism rather than something that they'd read on their own. By the time Georgie was 40, he was fired from his editorial position and found that many of his plays were beginning to be censored and even taken off of stage completely. One of his plays, which was cancelled after its 13th show, saw its director and five of the actors involved blacklisted from working in Sofia and actually banished. At this point, Georgi felt it was best to leave Bulgaria, at least for the time being. He made his way to Italy where he spent time with his cousin before moving to London in 1971. Whilst there, he was employed by the BBC to cover cultural events, and it was also during this time that Georgie's personal life became solidified in England. He married his BBC colleague, Annabelle. At the beginning of his work for the BBC... He didn't directly engage in criticising the regime, but over the next few years, he was informed that his Bulgarian Writers' Union membership had been suspended, and he had been sentenced in his absence to six years and six months in prison for his desertion. The official reason for the sentence was listed as, quote, his hostile attitude towards the established order in our country During this time, his writings were taken out of libraries and bookshops and the official Bulgarian media kept his name out of all coverage. It was at this point, with the realisation that he would never be returning to Bulgaria, that he became more free in what he was saying, specifically with regards to his criticisms of the Bulgarian regime, He eventually started to broadcast radio essays that were very different to what he had covered before. He wrote openly about subjects that had, at most, only been discussed in secret before. He knew a lot of party officials, so he was able to describe life as it really was. He spoke of the privileges he received as a talented artist, making work to reflect what Zivkov wanted, the money and the cars, even permission to travel abroad. He knew that his ability to fully speak his mind now only came because he no longer had to fear the labour camps, which was so common for the less privileged. Georgie said, quote, that was precisely the purpose behind the sweet life offered to us, to stop us writing, unquote. Over the next three years, Georgie published 137 instalments featuring an honest and direct retelling of moments of his lived experience before he left Bulgaria. He exposed the totalitarian nature and gave voice to those that had up until this point been silent. Quote, Invisible lives of prostitutes and the petty, comfortable life of the Bulgarian intelligentsia. He was ultimately using his radio broadcasts to create a movement for other free thinkers, and the Bulgarian government would do anything to stop this from happening. Following Georgie's death, police officers began by appealing for eyewitnesses of the event Georgie had described. They spoke to anyone who had been on the bridge at the time, but due to the mundane pedestrian nature of the attack, there were no accurate eyewitness accounts of what had actually happened. They knew from Georgie that the perpetrator had crossed the road and immediately been taken away in a taxi, but the police couldn't locate the taxi driver or even the correct taxi firm. The autopsy found haemorrhages in a large number of organs and the right leg was swollen, which indicated a reaction to an extremely powerful poison. The tissue from around the wound was extracted and sent to Porton Down Research Facility, a top-secret lab which is used by specialist experts. After solid work for hours and hours each day following Georgie's death, the scientists made a breakthrough. They found that a section of the tissue held a tiny metal ball bearing. The ballistics lab had never seen anything like it. The pellet was made from platinum iridium, a metal that was unlikely to be rejected from the body, therefore making the fatality more probable. It had two minute holes in it which, it was concluded, would have held a concentrated toxin. It was also found that the ball was likely sealed with a waxy coating that, when fired, would enter the body and the natural temperature would melt the coating and the poison would be released. Unfortunately, experts couldn't find any trace of the poison used. Just under two weeks prior to Georgie's murder, another Bulgarian defector, Vladimir Kostov, had just got off the metro in Paris. He made his way up the escalator where he felt a short, sharp pain in his back. As he turned around, he saw someone running away from him. Just moments later, he began to feel ill and exhibited a high temperature Vladimir actually recovered and, on hearing of Georgie's murder, contacted the authorities. On the 25th of September, Vladimir had an operation on his back, which resulted in doctors finding a small spherical pellet. The pellet was sent for testing, but no poison was found. It's thought that Vladimir survived the attack because the thick jumper he was wearing may have meant that the pellet couldn't penetrate as far as the one that killed Georgie did, and therefore the amount of poison that entered his bloodstream wasn't fatal. Authorities asked Vladimir who he thought may have wanted him dead, and he told them that, as a Bulgarian defector, he regularly received death threats from Bulgarian figures. The forensic experts found that the holes in both of the pellets were so small that they could only hold a maximum of 2 milligrams of poison. This meant that the poison used had to be extremely toxic. You would need to use at least 5 times that amount of cyanide for it to be lethal. This narrowed down the potential poisons investigators were looking at and they eventually determined it would have been either ricin or abrin. Both of these toxins have a neurotoxic effect. They attack cells and, eventually, force the body to shut down. Investigators concluded that abrin was too rare a substance and ricin was known to cause hemorrhaging, which was consistent with the evidence of Georgie's autopsy. Experts needed to be sure that this was the poison used and needed more evidence. They decided to inject a pig of the same weight as Georgie with ricin. They found that the pig's organs exhibited identical changes to that of Georgie. Ricin comes naturally from plants known as castor bean. The castor oil plant is common and the castor oil itself is safe to take when taken from the bean, but when it's purified, it is deadly. By weight, ricin is one of the top three toxins known to man. The weapon used was identified as a highly technical pellet gun disguised in an umbrella. The pedestrian item consisted of a release catch that led to a spring, which activated a gas cylinder that shot the pellet out. It made sense that the attack happened at a bus stop on Waterloo Bridge because they knew that Georgie would be standing still and the very mundane umbrella was a perfect cover. At first, investigators were unsure as to how Bulgaria would have gained access to such weapons. They weren't known to have previously produced weapons like this. However, it was soon concluded that the KGB's involvement would have allowed access to such deadly weapons. The KGB had been doing experiments on ricin for years. They had ample research into both this and the development of lethal weapons during the war. The KGB was known for its poison pens and umbrella guns. The case came to a bit of a halt, when all of the evidence found was determined to be circumstantial. It wasn't until more than 10 years later, the president of Bulgaria, Zivkov, was arrested on corruption charges. The people of Bulgaria rioted, and after nearly 50 years of oppression, they rejoiced at the dictator's arrest. Although Zivkov failed to admit that he had ordered the assassination following his death, authorities found official records in the archive of the Foreign Intelligence Agency that pointed towards Georgie being a target. However, many specific and incriminating details were missing. It wasn't long before it was revealed that the former head of state security had actually destroyed the records illegally. He was arrested for the crime, but ultimately wasn't ever properly interrogated because of his military status. Of the documents that were found, the most damning were those that detailed a man with the codename Piccadilly who was assigned to deal with Georgie. Piccadilly, whose real name was later found to be Francesco Gallino, was assigned the secret mission whilst he was based in Denmark. He adopted a false identity as an art dealer. He made his way to Copenhagen and from there made regular trips to London under the guise of dealing art. It was confirmed that he was in London at the time of the murder and he stayed near Georgie's home. In February of 1993, Francesco was tracked down in Copenhagen. He was interrogated and charged with espionage. But ultimately, because of a lack of solid evidence linking him to the murder, he was allowed to leave as a free man. Once he did leave, he sold his house and disappeared. His current whereabouts are unknown. The news of Georgi's murder was censored in Bulgaria. As he was considered an enemy of the state, he wasn't mentioned at all, and all of his books were removed from libraries, whilst his film credits had his name removed. Georgi's acknowledgement of the dissident movement created worldwide awareness of the Soviet communist abuses. However, before the dissolve of the Soviet Union in 1991, there was, unfortunately, a smear campaign against Georgie, with a lot of deliberate misinformation and rumours, which means that even now, a lot of Bulgarians don't know the truth. Georgi's cousin, Lyubin, eventually found out of his death from friends. Although devastated, he wasn't surprised, and said he always knew the state wouldn't let him get away with leaving and speaking out against them. In 2008, the statute of limitations, a law that states a legal action must be brought before a particular period of time has passed, 30 years in this case, ran out. And so the case is officially unsolved and will remain that way in Bulgaria forever. Scotland Yard's investigation is still open However, cooperation between Bulgaria and England over the years has not been good, so lots of information needed to be compiled together to make sense of the events never was. Georgi's cousin Lyubin continues, even now, to demand justice. He makes sure that each year there are events and readings in Georgi's honour, and that any information he gets about the murder goes straight to the investigators. He also continues to spread the work of Georgie and all that he stood for, having essays and plays of his republished, or in some cases, published for the first time. Georgie lived and died for his art. He wrote beautifully and about the real world. His legacy lives on, and is in some ways, even more important now than ever. Quote, Poetry, beautiful, sincere, great poetry, has always been the great compensation that life has given us to make us, after all suffering, better, more beautiful, and more meaningful. Red Rum is written and presented by Grace Cordell. It's produced by Russ Clark and Grace Cordell. Sound design by Russ Clark with additional music by Benjamin James. Hello, I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan. And we're the hosts of Seeing Red. We deliver intriguing, terrifying and dumbfounding true crime stories each and every week. With a focus on cases from the UK, we do occasionally venture overseas, we've covered everything from the mysterious death of professional footballer Emiliano Sala to the attempted murder of Victoria Silias, a woman who fell from the sky and lived to tell the tale. Binge our bulging back catalogue and join us every Wednesday for a new episode of Seeing Red.